Chapter 7, Parts 7, 8, and 9 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 7, Part 7, Battle of Plataea. The field on which the fate of Greece was decided is bounded on the north by the river Asopus, on the south by Mount Cithaeron. The town of Plataea stood in the southwest of this space, on the most westerly of six ridges which connect the lower heights of the mountain with the plain. Three roads descended here into Boeotia, on the extreme east the road from Athens to Thebes, in the centre that from Athens to Plataea, on the west that from Megara to Plataea. The Greek army took the most easterly way, which, after a gradual ascent on the Attic side, reaches the fortress of Eleutheri and the pass of the Oak's Heads, and then descends steeply into the Boeotian land. They found when they reached the other side that the road passed through the Persian camp, and they were forced to take up a position at the foot of the pass. Their right wing, consisting of the Spartans and Tegeates, rested on the high bastion of the mountain, which rises above the town of Erythri. Their centre, on lower ground close to the town, and the left wing, where the Athenians and Megarians were posted, was advanced right down to the foot of the descent. Thus the position of the Greeks was astride the road to Thebes. The only assailable point was the left wing, and against it Mardonius sent cavalry under the command of Mecistius. Sore bestead by the darts and arrows of the enemy, and with no cavalry to aid them, the Megarians required succour. Three hundred Athenians, for the Athenians were also on the left wing, went down to the scene of battle, and the fortune of the day was at last changed when the general Mesistius, a conspicuous figure in the fight, fell from his wounded charger. He was slain with difficulty by a spear which pierced his eye, for his armour was impenetrable, and the Persian horsemen, after a furious and fruitless charge to recover the body of their leader, abandoned the attack. The camp of the Persians was filled with loud wailing and lamentation, echoing, says Herodotus, all over Boeotia for the death of Mesistius. But this success was far from dealing any solid advantage to the Greeks or serious injury to their foes. The Persians were well content to remain where they were. Their great hosts still lay north of the Asopus. The Greeks, in order to obtain a better water supply, and knowing that there was no chance that the Persians would attack them in their present position, decided to occupy lower ground in the territory of Plataea. In order to do this, they moved northwestward along the spurs of Cithaeron, past the towns of Erythri and Hisii, 
To understand the operations which ensued, it is to be observed that the region between Cytheron and Theosopus falls into two parts separated by a depression in the ground. The southern part is marked by the six ridges already mentioned and the streams which divide them, while the northern tract is also hilly, being marked by three ridges between which rivulets flow into the Asopus. Westward the depression opens out into flat land, the only flat land here, which stretches northward from Plataea to the river and is traversed by the road to Thebes. The Greek army ultimately arranged itself in order of battle between the Theban road and the Moloice, a tributary stream of the Asopus. Their position was marked by the spring of Gargaphia, which afforded an abundant supply of fresh water, and the temple of the hero Androcrates. We are told that a dispute arose between the Tegeates and the Athenians for the occupation of the west wing, and that the Lacedaemonians decided in favour of the Athenians, who, as we have seen, were under the command of Aristides. The Tegeates were stationed next the Lacedaemonians on the right. Pausanias had now lost control of the eastern passes across Mount Cithaeron. The Persian general, as soon as the Greeks had left their first position, promptly occupied the roads and cut off a provision train which was on its way to supply the Greek army. The Greek general hoped every day that the enemy would attack, but Mardonius, apart from cavalry skirmishing, remained persistently on the defensive. It would seem that the Greeks remained about two days inactive in this weak position, harassed by the Persian cavalry, which crossed the river, hovered on the ridges, discharged darts into the camp, and finally succeeded in choking up the waters of the Gargaphia spring. The only course open to the Greeks was to fall back upon the mountain and either take up a position on the ridges between Hisii and Plataea, or seek to regain their former position at the foot of the main pass. For they could not venture to cross the Asopus and brave the Persian cavalry. Pausanias held a council of war, and it was determined that the army should fall back to a position between Hisii and Plataea, and that one division should move up the mountain slope to recover command of the pass from Plataea to Athens. The whole movement was to be carried out at night. Perhaps Pausanias had received information that the Persian commander was growing impatient and was contemplating an attack. In any case, his plan of retreat proved fortunate, and though it was not executed with precision, the Persians, even as at Salamis, were induced to give battle in conditions chosen by their enemy and unfavourable to themselves. We might understand why Mardonius decided to abandon the defensive strategy to which hitherto he had adhered, if we knew something of the intrigues and divisions in the Persian camp. There seems to have been disastrous rivalry between himself and his second-in-command, Artabazus, who in the ensuing battle did simply nothing, and probably desired that Mardonius should not win the glory of victory. 
A little to the southeast of Plataea, a spur of Cytheron was enclosed by the two branches of a stream which met again at the foot of the ridge and went by the name of the island. It was arranged that the Athenians should now occupy the centre next the Lacedaemonians, and they were instructed to retreat to this ridge. The scheme was carried out, as it was planned, by the left wing, who took up their post in front of the temple of Hera, which was just outside the walls of Plataea. But the Athenians, for some unexplained reason, failed to obey orders, and remained where they were in a dangerous and isolated position. The Lacedaemonians, too, seem to have wasted the precious hours of the short night. Their delay is ascribed to the obstinacy of the commander of one of the Spartan divisions, who had not been present at the council of war, and refused to obey the order to retreat. His name was Amompharitus. He was a man of blameless valour, and Pausanias could not persuade himself to leave him behind. But the morning was approaching, and at length Pausanias began his march, convinced that his stubborn captain would follow when he found himself deserted. And so it fell out. When they had moved about ten stades, the Spartans saw that Amompharitus was coming, and waited for him. But the day had dawned. The Persians had perceived that the Greek position was deserted, and Mardonius decided that now was the moment to attack, when the forces of the enemy were divided. His cavalry came up and prevented the Lacedaemonians from proceeding. It was on the slopes under Hisii, near the modern village of Krikuki, that Pausanias was compelled to turn and withstand the Persian horsemen, who was speedily supported by the main body advancing under Mardonius himself. The Persians threw up a light barricade of their wicker shields, from behind which they discharged innumerable arrows. Under this fire the Greeks hesitated, for the victims were unfavourable. At length Pausanias, looking towards the temple of Hera, invoked the goddess, and after his prayer the prophets obtained good omens from the sacrifices. The Lacedaemonians no longer held back. Along with the Tegeates who were with them, they carried the barricade and pressed the Persians backwards towards the temple of Demeter, which stood on a high acclivity above them. In this direction the battle raged hotly, but the discipline of the best spearmen of Greece approved itself brilliantly, and, when Mardonius fell, the battle was decided. The Lacedaemonians and Tegeates had borne the brunt of the day. At the first attack, Pausanias had dispatched a hasty messenger to the Athenians. As they marched to the scene, they were attacked by the Greeks of the left wing of the enemy's army, who effectually hindered them from marching farther. Meanwhile the tidings had reached the rest of the Greek army at Plataea that a battle was being fought, and that Pausanias was winning it. They hastened to the scene, but the action was practically decided before their arrival. Some of them were cut off on the way by Theban cavalry. The defeated host fled back across the Esopus to their fortified camp. 
the Greeks pursued and stormed it. The tent of Mardonius was plundered by the men of Tegea, who dedicated in the temple of Athena Alea in their city the brass manger of his horses, while his throne with silver feet and his scimitar were kept by the Athenians on the Acropolis, along with the breastplate of Mesistius as memorials of the fateful day. The body of Mardonius was respected by Pausanias, but it was mysteriously stolen, and none ever knew the hand that buried it. The slain Greek warriors, among whom was the brave Amomphoritus, were buried before the gates of Plataea, and the honour of celebrating their memory by annual sacrifice was assigned to the Plataeans, who also agreed to commemorate the day of the deliverance of Hellas by a feast of freedom every four years. Pausanias called the host together, and in the name of the Spartans and all the confederacy, guaranteed to Plataea political independence and the inviolability of her town and territory. The hour of triumph for Plataea was an hour of humiliation for Thebes. Ten days after the battle, the army advanced against the chief Boeotian city and demanded the surrender of the leaders of the Medizing party. On a refusal, Pausanias laid siege to the place, but presently the leaders were given up by their own wish, for they calculated on escaping punishment by the influence of bribery. But Pausanias caused them to be executed without trial at Corinth. A Theban poet who sympathised with the national effort of Hellas might well feel distressed in soul. The battle had been won simply and solely by the discipline and prowess of the Spartan hoplites. The plans of the exceptionally able commander, who was matched indeed with a commander abler than himself, were frustrated once and again through the want of unity and cohesion in his army, through the want, apparently, of tactical skill, most of all, perhaps, through the half-heartedness of the Athenians. Never do the Athenians appear in such an ill light as in the campaign of Cytheron, and in no case have they exhibited so strikingly their faculty of refashioning history, in no case so successfully imposed their misrepresentations on the faith of posterity. They had no share in the victory, but they told the whole story afterwards so as to exalt themselves and to disparage the Spartans. They represented the night movements planned by Pausanias as a retreat before an expected attack of the enemy, and they invented an elaborate tale to explain how the attack came to be expected. Mardonius, they said, growing impatient of the delay, called a council of war, and it was decided to abandon defensive tactics and provoke a battle. Then Alexander of Macedon showed at this critical moment that his real sympathies were with Hellas and not with his barbarian allies. He rode down to the outposts of the Athenians, and, shouting, we must suppose, across the river, revealed the decision of the Persian council of war. 
Thus made aware of the Persian resolve to risk a battle, the Spartans proposed to the Athenians to change wings, in order that the victors of Marathon might fight with the Persians, whose ways of warfare they had already experienced, while the Spartans themselves could deal better with the Boeotians and other Greeks, with whose methods of fighting they were familiar. The proposal was agreed to, and as day dawned the change was being effected. But the enemy perceived it, and immediately began to make a corresponding change in their own array. Seeing their plan frustrated, the Greeks desisted from completing it, and both the adversaries resumed their original positions. Mardonius then sent a message to the Lacedaemonians, complaining that he had been deeply disappointed in them, for though they had the repute of never fleeing or deserting their post, they had now attempted to place the Athenians in the place of danger. He challenged them to stand forth as champions for the whole Greek host and fight against an equal number of Persians. To this proposal the Spartans made no reply. Then Mardonius began his cavalry operations, which led to the retreat of the Greeks from their second position. The three striking incidents of this malicious tale, the night visit of Alexander, the fruitless attempt of the Spartans to shirk the responsibility of their post on the right wing, the challenge of Mardonius, are all improbable in themselves. But nevertheless this story was circulated and believed, and has received a sort of consecration in the pages of Herodotus. End of chapter 7, part 7 Chapter 7, part 8, Battle of Mycale and Capture of Sestos The Battle of Cytheron shares with Salamis the dignity of being decisive battles in the world's history. Pindar links them together as the great triumphs of Sparta and Athens respectively, Battles wherein the meads of the bent bows were sore afflicted. Notwithstanding the immense disadvantage of want of cavalry, the Lacedaemonians had turned at Plataea a retreat into a victory. The remarkable feature of the battle was that it was decided by a small part of either army. Sparta and Tegea were the actual victors, and on the Persian side, Artabazus, at the head of forty thousand men, had not entered into the action at all. On the death of Mardonius, that general immediately faced about and began without delay the long march back to the Hellespont. Never again was Persia to make a serious attempt against the liberty of European Greece. A god, said a poet of the day, and the poet was a Theban, turned away the stone of Tantalus, imminent above our heads. For the following century and a half, the dealings between Greece and Persia will only affect the western fringe of Asia, and then the balance of power will have so completely shifted that Persia will succumb to a Greek conqueror, and Alexander of Macedon will achieve against the Asiatic monarchy what Xerxes failed to achieve against the free states of Europe. 
one memorial of this victory of Europe over Asia has survived till today. The votive offering which the Greeks sent to Delphi was a tripod of gold set upon a pillar of three brazen serpents, with the names of the Greek peoples who offered it inscribed upon the base. The pillar still stands in Byzantium, whither it was transferred after that city had been renamed Constantinople by her second founder. The immense booty which was found in the Persian camp was divided, when portions had been set apart for the gods and for the general who had led the Greeks to victory. The achievement of the Hellenic army under Mount Cithaeron, which rescued Greek Europe from the invader, was followed in a few days by an achievement of the Hellenic fleet, which delivered the Asiatic Greeks from their master. The Greek fleet was still at Delos. We saw that it was the policy of the Athenians to remain inactive at sea until a battle had been fought on land, for a naval victory would probably have meant the retreat of the Spartans from northern Greece on the calculation that the enemy would not attack Peloponnesus without the cooperation of the fleet. But the armament at Delos was drawn into action by a message from the Samians seeking to join the Greek League and begging help against the Persian. For the Persian fleet was at Samos, and hard by at Cape Mycale, a large Persian army, including many Ionian troops, was encamped. The Samian request was granted. Leotychides sailed to the island, and on his approach the Persian ships withdrew to the shelter of Cape Mycale and their army. The Greeks landed, attacked, carried, and burned the enemy's camp. Their victory was decided by the desertion of the Ionians, who won their freedom on this memorable day. Mycale followed so hard upon Plataea that the belief easily arose that the two victories were won on the same afternoon. There is more to be said for the tradition that as the Athenians and their comrades assailed the entrenchments on the shore of Mycale, the tidings of Plataea reached them and heartened them in their work. The Athenians and Ionians, led by the admiral Xanthippus, followed up the great victory by vigorous action in the Hellespont, while the Peloponnesians, with Leotychidas, content with what they had achieved, returned home. The difference between the Athenian and the Spartan character, between the cautious policy of Sparta and the imperial instinct of Athens, is here distinctly, and it is not too much to say, momentously expressed. The Lacedaemonians were unwilling to concern themselves further with the Greeks of the eastern and northeastern Aegean. The Athenians were both capable of taking a Panhellenic point of view and moved by the impulse to extend their own influence. The strong fortress of Sestos, which stands by the Straits of Heli, was beleaguered and taken and with this event Herodotus closes his history of the Persian Wars. The independence of the Hellespontine regions was a natural consequence of the victory of Mycale, 
but its historical significance lies in the fact that it was accomplished under the auspices of Athens. The fall of Sestos is the beginning of that Athenian empire to which Pisistratus and the elder Miltiades had pointed the way. End of chapter 7, part 8 Chapter 7, part 9, Gelone, Tyrant of Syracuse While the eastern Greeks were securing their future development against the Persian foe, and were affirming their possession of the Aegean waters, the western Greeks had been called upon to defend themselves against that Asiatic power which had established itself in the western Mediterranean, and was a constant threat to their existence. The Greeks had indeed, on their side, proved a formidable check and hindrance to the expansion of the dominion and trade of Carthage. The endeavours of this vigorous Phoenician state to secure the queenship of the western seas, from Africa to Gaul, from the coast of Spain to the shores of Italy, depended largely for their success on her close connection and identity of interests with her sister towns in Sicily, and secondly on her alliance with the strong pirate power of Etruria. The friendly Phoenician ports of western Sicily, Motia, Panormus, and Solus, were an indispensable aid for the African city, both for the maintenance of her communications with Tuscany and for the prosecution of designs upon Sardinia and Corsica. In Corsican waters, as well as in Sicily, the Phoenician clashed with the Greek. It was in the first quarter of the sixth century that Dorian adventurers from Cnidus and Rhodes sought to gain a foothold in the barbarian corner of Sicily at the very gates of the Phoenicians. The name of their leader was Pentathlus. He attempted to plant a settlement on Cape Lilibium, hard by Motia, a direct menace to the communications between Motia and Carthage. The Phoenicians gathered in arms, and they were supported by their Illimian neighbours. The Greeks were defeated, and Pentathlus was slain. It was not the destiny of Lilibium to be the place of a Hellenic city, but long afterwards it was to become illustrious as the site of a Punic stronghold, which would take the place of Motia when Motia herself had been destroyed by a Greek avenger of Pentathlus. After their defeat, the men of Pentathlus, casting about for another dwelling-place, betook themselves to the volcanic archipelago off the north coast of Sicily, and founded Lipera in the largest of the islands. This little state was organised on communistic principles. The soil was public property, a certain number of the citizens were set apart to till it for the common use, the rest were employed in keeping watch and ward on the coasts of their little home against the descents of Tuscan rovers. This system was indeed subsequently modified. The land was portioned out in lots, but was redistributed every twenty years. The attempt of Pentathlus, the occupation of the Liparian group, the recent settlement of Acragas, 
pressed upon Carthage the need of stemming the Greek advance. Accordingly, we find her sending an army to Sicily. The commander of this expedition, precursor of many a greater, was Malchus, and it is possible that he was opposed by Phalaris, who established a tyranny at Acragas. There was a long war, of which we know nothing except that the invader was successful and Greek territory was lost to the Phoenician. In the northern seas, Carthage was also confronted by the Greeks. The Phocians of Massalia planted colonies and won influence on the coast of Spain. We are told that in the days of Cambyses, the Phocians gained repeated victories over the Carthaginians by sea. Moreover, the new Phocian settlement at Alalia in Corsica was a challenge to Carthage in what she regarded as her own domain. But Greek Alalia was short-lived. Carthage and her powerful Etruscan allies nearly annihilated the Phocian fleet, and the crews which escaped were only able to rescue their families and goods. Alalia was deserted. Corsica fell under the power of the Etruscans, and the coasts of Sardinia were gradually appropriated by Carthage. Thus the chance of establishing a chain of Greek settlements between Massalia and Sicily was frustrated. It now remained for Carthage to establish and extend Phoenician power in Sicily. We have seen how Dorius, son of a Spartan king, made an attempt to do somewhat the same thing which the Canadian adventurer had essayed, to gain a footing in Sicily within the Phoenician circle. He, too, failed, but such incidents brought home to Carthage the need of dealing another and a mightier blow at the rival power in Sicily. She was occupied with the conquest of Sardinia and with a Libyan war, and the struggle was postponed. But the hour came at last, and the Carthaginians put forth all their power to annihilate colonial Greece at the very time when the great king had poured forth the resources of Asia against the mother country. It was, in the first instance, an accident that the two struggles happened at the same moment. The causes which led to the one were independent of the causes which led to the other, but the exact moment chosen by Carthage for her attack upon Sicily was probably determined by the attack of Xerxes upon Greece, and although the two struggles ran each its independent course, there is no reason to question the statement that the courts of Susa and Carthage exchanged messages through the mediation of the Phoenicians, and were conscious of acting in concert against the same enemy. In the second decade of the fifth century, Greek Sicily was dominated by four tyrants. Anaxilas of Regium had made himself master of Zancli, which from this time forward is known as Masana, and he thus controlled both sides of the straits, which he secured against the passage of Etruscan pirates. Tyrillus, his father-in-law, was tyrant of Himera, over against this family group in the north stood another family group in the south, Gelon of Syracuse and his father-in-law Theron of Acragas. Gelon had been the general of Hippocrates 
a tyrant of Gila, who had extended his sway, whether as lord or overlord, over Naxos, Zankli, and other Greek cities, and had aimed at winning Syracuse. Hippocrates had defeated the Syracusans on the banks of the Helorus, and would have seized their city if it had not been for the intervention of Corinth and Corsaira. But Syracuse was forced to cede her dependency Camarina to the victor. Hippocrates died in besieging Hybla, and the men of Gila had no mind to allow his sons to continue their father's tyranny. But Gelon, son of Dinomenes, a general who had often led the cavalry of Gila to victory, espoused the cause of his master's heirs, and as soon as he had gained possession of the city, brushed them aside and took the tyranny for himself. The new lord of Gila achieved what his predecessors had vainly striven to accomplish. The Gamorai, or nobles of Syracuse, had been driven out by the commons, and they appealed to Gelone to restore them. The Syracusan people, unable to resist the forces which Gelone brought against them, made terms with him, and he established his power in Syracuse over oligarchs and democrats alike. It seems probable that Gelone was either at once, or at a later stage of his rule, appointed formally general with full powers. We find his brother Hieron, who succeeded to his position, addressed by the poet Bacchylides as general of the Syracusan horsemen. The tyrant of Gila now abandoned his own city and took up his abode in Syracuse, making it the centre of a dominion which embraced the eastern part of the island. Gila had for a short space enjoyed the rank of the first of Sicilian cities. She now surrendered it to Syracuse, which was marked out by its natural site for strength and domination. Gelone may be called the second founder of Syracuse. He joined the island of Ortigia with the fortified height of Acredina, which looked down upon it. In the course of the sixth century, a mole had been constructed connecting the island with the mainland, so that the city, though it was still called the island, had become strictly a peninsula. Gelone built a wall from the Acredina fort down to the shore of the great harbour. Thus Acredina and Ortigia were included within the same circuit of wall. Acredina became part of the city, Ortigia remained the Acropolis. The chief gate of Syracuse was now in the new wall of Gelone, close to the harbour, and near it a new agora was laid out, for the old agora in the island no longer sufficed. Hard by docks were built, for Syracuse was to become a naval power. She was now by far the greatest Greek city in the west. Gelone, belonging to a proud and noble family, sympathised and most willingly consorted with men of his own class, and looked with little favour on the people, whom he described in a famous phrase as a thankless neighbour. He held court at Syracuse like a king, 
surrounded by men of noble birth. He tolerated the Syracusan commons, he was not unpopular with them, but he showed elsewhere what his genuine feelings were. One of his first needs was to find inhabitants to fill the spaces of his enlarged town. For this purpose he transplanted men on a large scale from other places of his dominions. His own town, Gila, was sacrificed to the new capital. The half of its citizens were removed to Syracuse. Harder was the fate of luckless Camarina, which was now for the second time blotted out from the number of Greek cities. Two generations had hardly passed since she had been swept away by the Syracusan Republic, and now the Syracusan tyrant carried off all the inhabitants and made them burgesses of the ruling state. Megara, the next-door neighbour of Syracuse on the north, and Euboea higher up the coast, also contributed to swell the population of Gilan's capital. Megara became an outpost of Syracuse, while Euboea was so entirely blotted out that its very site is uncertain. But in both these cases the policy of Gilone strikingly displayed the prejudice of his class. He admitted the nobles of Megara and Euboea to Syracusan citizenship. He sold the mass of the commons in the slave market. In abolishing cities and transplanting populations, Gilon set an example which we shall see followed by later tyrants. He also invited new settlers from elder Greece, and he gave the citizenship to ten thousand mercenary soldiers. Gilon was supported in his princely power by his three brothers, Hieron, Polyzalus, and Thasibulus. He entered into close friendship with Theron, his fellow tyrant, who made Acragas in wealth a power second only to Syracuse itself. Theron, like Gilon, was a noble belonging to the family of the Emenids, and his rule was said to have been mild and just. Gilon married Damareta, the daughter of Theron, and Theron married a daughter of Polyzalus. The brilliant lords of Syracuse and Acragas, thus joined by close bonds, were presently associated in the glorious work of delivering Greek Sicily from the terrible danger which was about to come against her from overseas. End of chapter 7, part 9 Recording by Graham Redmond